It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Bud Proven is a third-generation owner and operator of the Nick Walkett Garage in Pittsford, Vermont, where he services and supplies parts for classic airheads and classic Triumph Twins. Bud is a regular contributor on Adventure Rider, if you hang out there much. He posts as BMW Wrench, a very appropriate name. His posts always seem to be to the point and poignant, and most importantly, spot on when folks are trying to troubleshoot a particular problem on the internet. Bud worked in his father's shop when they were an early BMW distributor. He later worked as a master tech for Bob's BMW, so he's got a lot of great stories to share. Let's dig in. It's Bud Proven coming to us from the Nick Walkett Garage in Pittsburgh, Vermont. We're on the phone with Bud Proven at the Nick Walkett Garage. And Bud, I'm calling you all the way up in Pittsburgh, Vermont. And... I'm wondering, before we dig into the BMW and Airhead stuff, you know, I'm not really familiar with that area of the country. So as far as motorcycling goes and just the quality and way of life up there, tell me a little bit about uh, living there. Well, it's been said that in Vermont you have nine months of winter and three months of poor sledding. So, and it can be that way. Um, we have had every kind of weather you can imagine in the last few months. And for the most part, we accept it. You know, either it's, it's freezing or it's 95 degrees and humid, pouring rain. Uh, we haven't had any tornadoes or earthquakes this year, but I won't rule them out. Anyway, when it's not raining, snowing, or something horrible, uh, the riding's pretty wonderful up here. Uh, light traffic, uh, lots of mountain roads. Yeah, I you know, I just did a quick sort of Google map. Uh, to see kind of what was around there. There seems to be some national forests, uh, a lot of sort of protected lands around there. And Pittsburgh, I would imagine, is a relatively small kind of picturesque community. Yeah, I think there's probably 800 people here, and the town looks much the same now as it did when I was a child. People got older. (laughs) Well, that's good. That's good. Um, So... You are a third-generation operator and owner of the Nick Walkett Garage, and I just want to get into a little bit of the history about it. Uh, It started out with your grandfather, uh, as I understand, as a car uh, shop, a car dealer. So let's dig into the history there, sort of set the the scene uh, for what your grandfather was doing back then and and how it got started and and also, I guess, the name, which is a bit unusual. My grandfather probably actually started as a farmhand. Uh, How he drifted into trying to run a car garage is a little beyond me, but apparently he had mechanical skills and gifts. And um, in the late 20s, 1920s, that is, uh, he had this building, which was a three-room schoolhouse, uh, moved here from across the creek from here. A uh, local guy cut it into pieces and moved it via truck through a covered bridge to its present location. He was a Graham automobile dealer and later on Willie's. I don't know how many cars he sold because we've never found any uh, parts or brochures, parts books, any kind of evidence that the place was ever a car dealership. Uh, the remaining car from those days is a 1938 Graham, um, Model 99, I think it is. They called it the Shark Nose. It's still sitting here and has been in and around this building since it was new. Uh, my grandfather died in 62 or 63, and my father, Lloyd, inherited the place. 
he had been running his triumph shop out of a, a little garage behind our house not far from here and uh, as soon as the paperwork cleared he moved in here and began expanding the business so what let me jump in there what uh, what got your dad into motorcycles and specifically triumphs I mean obviously there were some not as many options I mean he could have been a, a Harley dealer or an Indian dealer maybe back then I don't know but what got him into the triumphs I've never asked him that and um, what got him into motorcycles interesting was my mother um, her father was a lifelong motorcyclist, my grandfather Wright. And I'm not sure which was the bigger draw, the bikes or my mom. <laughs> uh, grandpa rode, had been riding Harleys, but at his half-brother's insistence, he went to a shop in Hoosick, New York, and bought a British motorcycle. He got a Royal Enfield. And that much impressed Dad, as well as a visit to that other shop who sold I think all the British brands at that time. Uh, somehow Dad wound up with a 55 Triumph Thunderbird. And uh, not long after buying the thing and continuing to work around here, somehow he became a Triumph dealer. Um, and the rest is history. Yeah. Um, do you recall, probably not details, you were probably a little bit younger uh, when all that started, but do you recall sort of what, what it took back then to become a dealer. I imagine it was a lot less complicated uh, than it is now, but you still had to deal with a distributor out of England somewhere. So what was the the M.O. in getting all that set up? Well, by then, 1957, there were two Triumph distributors in the USA, one on the West Coast, which was Johnson Motors, started by a guy named Bill Johnson, and on the East Coast, Tricor, which was actually owned by Triumph of England. I've never heard how Dad became a dealer, except that I expect one of Triumph's so-called roadmen found him playing with his Triumph in Pittsburgh. He worked in a gas station just down the street part-time. Yeah, it didn't take a lot. Uh, I think if you could fog a mirror and were interested in motorcycles, you'd be good. <laughs> There wasn't any big showroom required or immense parts right. uh, inventory or a number of motorcycles around. Uh, I think probably in those days it would be unusual to find three bikes on the showroom floor. Yeah, and you know, and especially at that that time, I would imagine. Um, you know, I don't know how long Triumph had been in the U.S. market, but um, you know, it's not that they were just throwing a dealership to anybody who wanted one. But um, you know, it behooved them to expand as much as they could. I would imagine. Yeah, England in those days uh, was still under the uh, philosophy of uh, export or die. So yes, they were looking to expand the dealerships just as fast as they could. So let's dig into how. Uh, you were introduced to BMWs there. So um, I'm guessing you were in your uh, you know, middle school, early teens, something like that. You started hanging around the shop a lot more with your dad, uh, you know, asking him, you know, can I, how can I help? Can I do this? Uh, and you got a little more interested, involved in, in mechanic work uh, at some point along the line then, uh, in the late 60s or early 1970, uh, Butler and Smith uh, was introduced uh, to the Proven uh, household. Yeah, my younger brother, who was 13 months younger than I, and I spent every day here that we could from the time we could walk, I think, um, but never got involved with uh, working on the things until one day Dad had fired his last outside-the-family hired mechanic and came home and said, you boys are going to become mechanics. <laughs> it, it was probably inevitable. Oh, probably. As my mother said, we couldn't keep you away from that shop. Yeah. And they couldn't, you know. I uh, Still can't, apparently. No, 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 that's true. But, uh Anyway, we were, we uh, we hung around when it was just Triumphs. Dad actually took on Suzuki in 1964 because uh, Triumph really didn't have anything available for a starter bike. Uh, but he parted ways with them in 1969. We had a customer in Rutland. That's the 
larger city to the south of us who had first bought a Suzuki or two. Uh, then as he his needs grew, he stepped up to a couple of 650 Triumphs uh, and then a Triumph Trident. Uh, but he hated taking care of chains, and the only bikes available in those days was shaft drive or BMW or Moto Guzzi. And uh, while BMW was pretty small in those days, they dwarfed Guzzi. Um, so this guy, Dennis, started a campaign to get Dad to become a BMW dealer. Uh, fortunately for Dad and Dennis, uh, a former Triumph Corporation sales manager had gone to work at Butler and Smith, and all it really took was, again, a phone call to Joe, and uh, pretty soon BMWs began arriving here. Wow. So that was uh, right around 1970? 1972. Okay, so that was... Of course, the uh, Slash 5 era. Right, yeah. So that was sort of uh, the heart of, or the heart of the beginning, I should say, of the quote-unquote classic uh, airhead. So they were a couple years into development then. How old were you uh, in 70, 1970 then? Uh, 1970, I'd have been 12. Okay, all right. So... 72, I was 14. Okay, so you're really then just sort of starting to grasp uh, what motorcycles really are and, and, and all that kind of stuff. You probably... Your memories, I assume, back then weren't, uh, you probably weren't taking notes on, you know, sort of the business operation and things. No, and I really didn't pay any attention to how the business was run until long after I'd left here the first time around. Um, But I was very interested in the bikes, but at that time it was just turn this bolt, turn this nut, here comes the engine, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, While I was tuning them, as in replacing points and adjusting valves and stuff, they, I still hadn't connected what with what really goes on inside an engine. Um, that probably didn't happen until honestly, at least until I was in my late teens. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, some of the first uh, slash fives uh, were some of the bikes that were there, and if I recall. Um, that your father had the dealership um, and was a BMW dealer uh, into what? Was it right around until 1980 or so? Yeah, 1980 was his last year as a franchise dealer. It was at that time that BMW North America took control of importation of BMW motorcycles. And that that was a big shift, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was no more... Um, playing games around the rules. You know, you're going to have a nice carpeted showroom, uh, this many motorcycles on the showroom floor, endless stuff that BMW North America wanted. Dad, by that time, was getting quite concerned at the price of new BMW motorcycles. I think the R100 RS at that point had got past $7,000, and we could all see a time when they'd be ten grand. Frankly, now it'd be nice to be able to buy a new BMW for ten dollars. <laughs> uh, but he didn't believe they would be able to sell them, and he might have been right. Um, BMW, when we first started with them, was a working man's motorcycle. Now, if you're a working man, you better be making real good money to buy one of the things. Yeah, and so what do you remember about um, the bikes of that era? Uh, as they were coming in, I mean, you did, for instance, uh, I mean, did you all get an R90S when they were new? Did you get one of those? And how did, how did it work? If you recall, uh, what bikes you guys as a dealership would get, did they just send them to you? Would you request models? How, How did that work? Well, you had to request them. And it was a simple matter of calling and saying, send me a blue R75 slash five or slash six or whatever. Uh, we sold quite a few R90Ss. Um, and discovered then probably as the motoring industry has always known the American customer mostly wants the biggest and fastest thing they can buy. Yeah. So guys are buying R90Ss and putting slash six handlebars on them and windjammer fairings and so forth. Uh, but largely you could get any model you wanted. So in a, in a town like that, and I'll, where you are in Vermont, 
Uh, and even so today, um, were you servicing and, or, or rather, were you servicing as far as a motorcycle dealer, a large portion of the state? I mean, what was the uh, closest dealer? I imagine you had a pretty wide reach uh, as far as a customer base up there. Uh, the nearest dealer when we first got into it was Peter Pickett at the wheel shop over in East Thetford. That's uh, near Woodstock. Uh, to the south, Eno Hocannon's shop, Green River BMW. That was uh, just across the line into Massachusetts. And somewhere in there, uh, Dick Phillips Motorsport on Pine Street in Burlington became a dealer. But uh, I think probably Dad's experience, long experience as a mechanic and motorcycle mechanic, paid off in that BMW soon began, began coming in from all over New England. Um, we had customers of both bike and service uh, well into New York State and New Hampshire uh, until uh, a shop opened in Essex, quite a few Canadians came in. They could save a fortune by getting their bikes hmm. uh, accessorized or serviced here. Interesting. Anywhere in the U.S. actually. And what was the what was the parts supply like from BMW back then? If somebody came in and you know needed service and parts, was it a relatively quick turnaround time? All things considered, for you know the mid seventies. Yeah, frankly, faster than it is now in, in a lot of cases. Uh, for one thing, there were only the three models to contend with, yeah. or, or as the case may be. You could place your order via phone to Butler and Smith, and we could count on seeing the parts in, quote, three working days, unquote. So uh, it was pretty quick. Yeah, that is reasonable. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably faster than a lot of other places. Uh, all things considered. So what did you end up uh, getting as your first airhead? I, you know, you probably had a lot of different bikes, I don't know, to choose from or ones that caught your attention. But I would imagine as a as a young fella, it was probably more sort of what was available in your in your budget. So what was the first bike um, of that style you bought? Well, I resisted the BMWs very strongly. I thought they were strange-looking old man's motorcycles. And I rode a 73 Triumph Daytona for several years and was kind of smug in the fact I could blow off a 750 BMW with it. Um, but my father kept insisting I wasn't giving the BMWs a chance. I really needed to ride one. and I remained unimpressed until I rode that same customer, Dennis's R90S. Uh, which we had put a uh, sport cam in at some point. And I couldn't quite believe how fast it was. Um, so the next thing I knew, I was looking hard at used BMWs. And a uh, customer traded in this beautiful 71 R60-5. It was uh, kind of a bluish silver with blue pinstripes. And, uh, I wasn't enamored with its looks, but I liked the colors. And um I guess you could say I eventually fell under their spell. Yeah, big time. And those, you know, an R60 back then had still had the slide-type carburetors, and, of course, that was nowhere near the performance of a R90S. But, I, you know, you mentioned something there. That was the reputation of BMW motorcycles uh, in the early 70s, uh, was that it was an old man's motorcycle, and, you know, the whole saying is you can get any color you like as long as it's black or white uh and that slowly started to change and i guess with the introduction of the r90s that really did open it up uh open up bmw to a new customer base did you see that uh there as well was that the case with that model motorcycle and and then going forward well i think there was still a lot of disdain for the bmws amongst the more conventional guys you know the uh the jet bike riders and, and certainly the Harley guys weren't interested in BMWs. Uh, it wasn't until R90Ss started blowing off guys on 750 Hondas and stuff that uh, they realized maybe that thing wasn't so much to be laughed at after all. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, it didn't tend to win many over. They were more likely to buy a BMW because of its perceived reliability. That was the selling uh, point. Yeah. Um, 
And then they discovered they were reasonably fast motorcycles, particularly the 90Ss. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Was there any, you know, I've often wondered this, um, was there any resistance that you know of from maybe guys in your father's generation um, who lived through World War II to those to BMWs because it was German? Mm, not much. Uh, my grandfather Wright, who I mentioned was a lifelong motorcyclist, uh, at my father's urging, took out an R75-6 one day and uh, he had a, a leg that was damaged in World War II, so he had trouble shifting it. It was his left leg that was injured. Uh, but he came back saying, that's that's a pretty nice motorcycle. It's too bad it's German. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that was, uh, yeah, that was from some things I've read here and there, you know, that was a lot of uh, impressions from GIs uh, who were over there was, you know, hey, these are actually pretty good motorcycles and uh you know some guys would have some shit back i think maybe some of the old r75s with the sidecars that uh, you see sometimes uh i think that's how some of those might have made their way back here uh into the states but yeah i'd always wondered about that it's because that was a different generation and you know people have different hang-ups on why they wouldn't want to buy something or, you know, some resistance, and I just never knew that was the case. Well, one thing that amazes me and has since I first realized it, there's a tremendous number of Jewish people riding BMWs. And uh, one guy whose bike I used to work on a fair bit, and I were just chatting one day while I worked on his bike, and I said, tell me something. There's a lot of Jewish guys riding BMWs. Don't you resent the Germans? Mm -hmm. He just shrugged and said, no, it's a fantastic motorcycle, and that was a long time ago. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, well said, well said. So um, you got your first uh, airhead, uh, an R60, as you mentioned, the Slash 5. Um, you worked, you're working in your dad's shop then. Uh, you mentioned he was carrying the bikes until 1980 when BMW North America took over, so... Sort of fill me in. I know eventually you went to work uh, for Bob's BMW. So tell me that sort of transition there uh, from working in your dad's shop to, I guess, eventually you moved to Maryland. There were a couple stops in between. After Dad gave up the franchise, kind of a mutual parting of the ways, I guess you'd say, uh, Carl von Schumer owned a BMW dealership in Plainfield, New, uh, Plainfield, Vermont, and uh, he started approaching me here and there about coming to work for him. And, uh, finally, in 1984, which was four years after Dad had given up the franchise, I agreed to go to work for him. Uh, and it's funny, I uh, the first day of work in March, we got such a snowstorm, I couldn't make it to work. In fact, the car I had borrowed got stuck in the snow, and I spent half the day getting it pulled out of there. But uh, I worked there uh, in Montpelier from uh, spring of 85 through 
June of 92. Uh, it was different working for someone besides my father. I gave poor Carl a lot of lip because it's <laughs> things I would have never dared say to my father. <laughs> and frankly, why the guy never fired me, I consider daily almost. Uh, but he didn't, and, and uh, we actually still get along better than we did then, I think. Uh, after that, I went to work at a uh, BMW dealership in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Berkshire Motor Works. Uh, it was a cool location to work on, but the guy was kind of a madman. And, uh, although I've said over the years, you got to be crazy to be a, be a motorcycle dealer in our first place. Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that. I went to work in Pittsfield knowing he was going to move to the Albany area. And in January of 93, we did. We moved to Albany, and uh, then the trouble really started there. It was too much shop for for us. Um the shop certainly hum, though, the workshop, that is. Um, but uh, it was an awful situation. They, the boss and I were really fire and water, and, uh, or maybe fire and gasoline. And uh, I sent my resume out. I interviewed at several shops and finally chose Bob's BMW. What year was that? I arrived at Bob's. Valentine's Day weekend in 1996, which went over big with my girlfriend. Um, and I was there through, uh, I think it was June 8th, 2008. Wow, that's you've got a good memory for the date there. Yeah, I don't know why I remember stuff like that. <laughs> was, do you remember, was it a Friday? I mean, do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I should mention this. Today is the 13th anniversary of the Nick Wackett Garage under my um, dubious leadership. Oh, okay. okay. Well, congratulations. That's, uh, that is a notable uh, timestamp for sure. So, now I didn't, okay, so I didn't realize you were at uh, Bob's uh, that later, that much later in your career. For some reason, I had it in my mind you were there uh, during the 80s. Um, so... When you started at Bob's, that was right at the end of the Airhead run. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, 95 was the last production year of the Airheads, for sure. Um, still a lot of them on the road and being worked on. And what was... Uh, so BMW then, obviously, were pushing the new R-Series bikes. The, I, guess it was, I guess that was the, the oil heads, uh, as they're known. Um <clears throat> but as you mentioned, still a real big following, still a lot of bikes uh, on the road from the 70 to 95 era. Um, I want to ask you, so you mentioned the, the couple different uh, dealers and stops before you went to Bob's. Did you go to uh, BMW Tech School? Yeah, um, almost annually. Okay. It was a, a bit of a junket for us. You know, we'd go in the fall when business had slowed down and um, go to service school by day and look for trouble by night. Um, fortunately, didn't find too much trouble. Uh, so, yeah, I, and it was a great time to be a service school uh, student. The instructors were terrific. A lot of hands-on of the bikes. And I don't think BMW was so secretive in those days, or hmm. maybe I should say they were more forthcoming in mm -hmm. those days. Uh, about the time the, um, the, the last of the oil heads and the across-the-frame fours arrived, the information we could get seemed less valuable. But it also might have been that I was horrified by where the new bikes had gone, and I wasn't happy at all. Yeah, I remember seeing a post on Adventure Rider. We sort of alluded to that. That was one of the reasons you sort of got out of that business. But back back to the uh, tech school, I've always been curious about that. So uh, to get hired as a BMW mechanic at a dealer, did you initially have to go to, a, you know, a three or four day training or, you know, the initial boot camp, so to speak? And then, as you mentioned, it was a yearly uh, sort of refresher course on, on what was new. Is it what, so? Did you have to go to the the boot camp, so to speak, first? Well, 
when I first became a certified BMW technician, um, I was still in high school. Oh, wow. Um, Dad, of course, had been certified shortly after he became a dealer. Uh, I think it was required of a dealer and or his mechanics to go. Uh, and the Butler Smith schools were terrific and fun. But I had been working on BMWs from, what, 1972 or so. Yeah. Arrived at uh, or took the job at Just Imports in the fall of 84. Um, and we wanted, the boss and me, wanted me to go to service schools for the K-bikes, which had arrived. Um, I had to take a written test so that I could skip going to the level one classes. And uh, my father wasn't real happy with me at the time for having left him. But when he found out I had to take a test, he nearly fell out of his chair laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so I did manage to pass the test and went on to go to New Jersey for uh, level two schooling, including the K-bikes. Wow. Interesting. So did, would BMW send uh, techs, uh, engineers and stuff from Germany, or did they train folks uh, in the States? Yeah, the uh, service school instructor, instructors, as far as I know, went to Germany to uh, to get the latest stuff, which has got to be tough. You go to a foreign country and have to speak a foreign language mm-hmm. and at least listen in it. A lot of there were a lot of Germans in at Butler and Smith and a few at uh, BMW North America, but uh, I spoke to Dan Browning one time about that. He was one of the uh, senior service school instructors. I said, Dan, you have to go to Germany for service school yourself. He says, yeah. I said, do you speak any German? He says, no, but I can understand enough to get by. Yeah, well, and, you know, to a certain degree, you know, I imagine, you know, mechanics, there's a lot of, you know, sort of common language and finger pointing and things, you know, even if you don't speak the language, you could get get by on that. Um, I want to ask you another thing, uh, sort of in that era, um, take you back to sort of, as you mentioned, when you really started working on bikes and going to the tech school from the mid seventies on into the nineties. Um, nowadays we hear a lot about recalls, whether it's, you know, currently with BMW, they've got the leaking calipers on the GSs or, you know, the uh, flapper on the exhaust that's, you know, giving people problems on the newer bikes. Um, what was the sort of, this is a couple prong question here. What was, in, in your experience, what was the quality control like uh, during the 70 to 95 era of bikes? Uh, what kind of recalls were there, and how is a recall different than a service bulletin? Um, I think quality control was better in the old days and has kind of steadily fallen off through the years. And I think that's probably true in all of industry. Is it be- partly because of that the bikes are more complicated? Uh, no, I well, probably yes, but uh, I think there's less commitment on the part of the um, the guys who are putting them together, and perhaps sheer difficulty in putting the things together. Yeah, see, having assembled them as a mechanic, uh, a recall differs from a service bulletin in that the service bulletin is pretty much just advice. I see. Uh, if this bike comes in, please replace this part. A recall is actually registered with the federal government and, in theory, stands forever. Hence, all those snowflake wheels that were replaced long after the bikes were out of warranty and, in fact, out of production. Uh, They did decide, I don't know when the statute might have changed, but they decided that a certain percentage of recalls completed meant that the manufacturer could end that recall. Interesting. Remember uh, announcement from BMW that several recalls were ended and a few were still left to do. Yeah, you mentioned the the snowflake wheel there. Um, That's still sort of a popular bit of lore uh, for folks who were just buying those. And, you know, as recently as a 
few years ago, you know, I've seen somebody mentioning that they were able to get another wheel, uh, shockingly enough. But that was probably one of those issues that, yes, it was a potential problem, but did you ever even really see a failure? Never. I've never seen one fail. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at them, you say, why wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh Especially when you compare it with a reinforced wheel that came later. Uh, I think we could probably still recall a wheel if there were any new wheels to be had. Right, yeah. that's We were still replacing them, got up into the 2000s while I was at Bob's. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. You know, going back to that quality control thing, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, there is a video um, floating around the Internet somewhere uh, I think it was uh, produced by somebody in France uh, of the motorcycle factory, the BMW factory. And back then it was in Berlin. Am I remembering that right or no? Where was it in the in the early seven mid 70s? I think that's correct. Yeah. There's a video of the shop where they're putting together. Uh, it's either 75, I think it's 75. Um, and the reason I mentioned that is because the background music in there is Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here. Somebody put that as the background music to this video. But anyway, it's just a real sort of fly-on-the-wall uh, look at how they put the bikes back, how they were manufacturing the bikes back then. And the video really seems to show the shops kind of like in kind of dingy, uh, not really well lit, not a lot of windows. Um, you know, there's guys smoking cigs, putting the wheels together, and, you know, it doesn't look anything like you would think a BMW, you know, quality-controlled shop environment would look like, especially what we know today in the modern manufacturing facilities. But if you've n have you ever seen that? I think I have. The lack of light never... Yes never um, became obvious to me. I was more intrigued with watching them put the things together. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's a really neat video. And anybody out there, if you haven't had a chance to see it, um, I don't know what to tell you to look for on Google to search, but uh, it's it's well worth uh, seven, eight minutes of your time just to get an insight uh, back then. So, all right. So sort of moving along the timeline here, um, you're at uh, Bob's, yeah, and I remember you told me a story when we talked before um, about, I found this interesting, about how BMW North America really ha tended to have a hard hand sometimes uh, on dealers. And just tell me a, a few experiences that I'm sure you've seen firsthand, had seen firsthand while you were there uh, about what it was like working with uh, North America back then as a dealer? Well, the, the one that really stands out in my mind is, uh, for some reason, a bunch of BMW dealers thought they should become Vespa dealers. And Bob jumped on that bandwagon. Uh, I think he ordered 200 of the things, which boggled my mind. Um, a BMW rep came into the shop one day and saw those Vespa motor scooters on the showroom floor and uh, said, we need to have a word to Bob. And uh, Bob discovered that if he wanted to get his sales incentives, he was going to have to put up a wall in the showroom between the BMWs and the Vespas. Uh, kind of boggled my mind. Yeah. And I, I recall our last conversation that uh, I termed the new Berlin Wall there. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, other things, you know, it's uh, interesting having worked on the service side of things. Uh, they were really quite good to us, except in the amount of flat rate time paid. And Bob's was a flat rate shop at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, some of the jobs simply couldn't have been done in the amount of time allotted. And, uh, one of the good things about being at Bob's is the number of motorcycles he sold gave him a little more bargaining power than, say, province sales and service would have had. Uh, and we got some of those uh, flat rate times changed. 
Yeah, I mean, you had the work had to be done, and if you ran into another issue or or something, sometimes it was unavoidable. Well, one of my favorite instances there was uh, replacing a shock rear shock on a K twelve hundred LT. It took longer than the flat rate time allotted just to find the shock. <laughs> All the body work on those motorcycles. I can imagine. Yeah. I raised hell about it. The service manager raised hell about it. Bob raised hell about it, and pretty soon they fixed it. Well, good for them. That, that's that's good to know they were proactive in that. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot, but I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, one last thing I want to ask you, sort of going back on your uh, rich history here uh, with the airheads, uh, two things is, one, what what do you recall about um, the two times when, one, the airhead was rumored to be stopped in 1984, and then what do you recall, uh, if anything, about the actual end of the airhead era? So what was the talk amongst, you know, guys like you in the shop, the mechanics, and what kind of stuff were you hearing from customers and uh, aficionados back then at those two uh, different times? I think most of the enthusiasts weren't aware that the end of the era was approaching in 84 until they announced the last edition models. Uh, then suddenly everybody realized that truly the, uh, or so it seemed, the Airhead era was over, uh, though they did have every intention of continuing to produce the R80s. Um, but I don't recall any great upset about it. Maybe the, everybody thought the Airhead had had its run. But on the other hand, there was enough clamor that they reintroduced the R100 in 1988 in the form of the R100 RS and RTs. Uh, they sold quite a few of them right up through 1992. Uh, and, of course, the other bikes on to the very end. Um, I didn't want to see them end, of course. They were, um, I don't know, I've, I've kind of invested my entire life in the airhead. And the the last run from ninety two uh, to ninety five, you know, some folks will say, "Well, that was a bit of a part spin bike," which I don't think is necessarily fair. In part because why they were using you know K bike headlights and hand switch controls and things like that. But um, you know, I owned a R one hundred Mystic for an, I owned two of them actually over the years. And I found those just to be wonderfully built bikes. Uh, they handled well. And like a lot of things, when you get to the end of a run, most of the issues and niggles uh, are worked out uh, by that time. Was that your sense uh, with that last production run? 
Well, you really could say there were parts in bikes. The R100R had its roots in the R100GS uh, with a Showa fork from the K75 and uh, K-bike handlebar switches. Uh, I think most of us, certainly me, thought that the K-bike switches were an advance, though not a cost-saving measure. Um, Really, I've always liked those switches. Me too, yeah. But, yeah, they were to a degree of part-spin bikes, and because they were, there were a lot more strange assemblies than in the past. The Hmm. uh, speedometer tachometer cluster on the uh, R100R, uh, kind of a bizarre arrangement of screws and things. Um, well, it was no worse than the uh, the mid nineties uh, GS. That was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> uh, you mean the fairing on the? Yes, thing? yeah, getting into oh, the. Or yes, I I had a guy come in for a, a new headlight, uh, as in reflector and lens. Yeah. Uh, GS, and I'd scheduled them for an hour or so in the afternoon. This was back when I worked at uh, Berkshire Motor Works. And my coworker had been through that before. He said, oh, you're... Hell no, uh, you're not going <laughs> to... No way. Uh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that... And, all afternoon. Yeah. And, I, you know, if you've got uh, anything resembling, uh, you know, large to extra large hands uh, trying to get in there, good grief. I mean, what a, what a fiddly bit that was. Um, all right, I want to move on um, and talk a little bit about uh, your experience uh, on Adventure Rider. Uh, you, you post there under BMW Wrench, uh, which is a very appropriate name, uh, obviously. And uh, I, I first sort of became aware of you there when uh, a few years ago you had a house fire. And I noticed there was a big outpouring of support from a lot of the forum members on there uh, on Adventure Rider. So tell me a little bit about that and, you know, what that meant to you. It was a a tremendous amount of support, caring, uh, help uh, after that fire. Uh, My friend Jeffrey Guntert, who has appeared occasionally on Adventure Rider as Nikon Jeff, uh, started a You Caring, I think it was, collection and the money came in from all over the country sometimes from people i'd crossed swords with before um often a quote accompanied by a a pleasant note or what have you so it was it was really something so and as far as you know somebody like you uh who's had extensive experience you know is a professional motorcycle mechanic uh, posting on a on a forum like that, where a, a lot of the users, myself included, uh, are more you know enthusiasts and you know professional parts replacers, uh, not uh, diagnostic mechanics or anything like that. Uh, you know, I can say it's help. It's really helpful to have you there uh, as a contributor and a member. And you know, the one thing I've always noticed about your post is they're really they're poignant. They're quick to the point. Uh, you generally don't tend to write, you know, long paragraphs and analysis of things. And I, I personally find that helpful because I know when you say something, uh, you, it's it's coming from a place of experience uh, and you know a good knowledge base. And a lot of times it can point point me or other people in in the right direction. Uh, so thanks for that. But also. Why? What's the uh, appeal, uh, and what draws you there uh, as a member and to post and help out folks? Well, there's a good question. I, I don't remember how I got involved in the first place. I think my <laughs> friend Robert Van Vliet said I should join. Uh, Robert used to post as wire worker. We lost him a few years ago. And, uh, I think he originally wanted me to get involved because someone was posting stuff that um, was incorrect. And he wanted wanted me to speak up. Set the record straight, so to speak. Yeah, and I enjoyed it. Uh, most of the guys on there are polite. Uh, uh, there's been a couple of arguments over the years, but mostly pretty, pretty good sharing of information, as the modern saying goes. Occasionally, I actually learn something, which is fun. Yeah. There's a guy, Warren, on there. I 
if he posts on something electrical, I know I don't need to to weigh in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, he, he's uh, that. That's a good uh, a good example there uh, of of somebody like that. Yeah, I think he's in Australia too. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Their electrons are similar, but they go upside down. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I for some reason enjoy it. Uh, you'd think someone who has already spent ten or twelve hours a day in a shop would rather not talk about motorcycles still, but. Um, that's what I do. Yeah, right. That, I was going to ask you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, at some point, if you had enough, you know, you just want to take a break. But, you know, I think a lot of it's the camaraderie on there uh, to a certain degree. And then, you know, I, you probably by nature, uh, I would guess, just have um, a sort of innate need or uh, to to want to help folks and, and lend a hand when you can. So. It's 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 great. It, you know, it's good it's good to have you on there. You've helped me out a few times uh with your post as well. So, kudos to you on that, bud. Thank you. All right. So, let's go down uh some kind of quick one-shot questions. Uh I'm liking to ask everybody and and see what type of responses we get. Uh these are always interesting. The first one is uh, your Mount Rushmore of airheads, so the four bikes from 1970 to 1995 that you would carve uh, on the North uh, Dakota mountain uh, as the Mount Rushmore of those bikes. R75-5, R90S, R80GS, R100RS. Okay, and let me, uh, is it South Dakota or North Dakota? South Dakota. Okay. You should have corrected me there a little bit sooner. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> okay. So the Slash 5, 750, obviously the uh, ushering in the classic era of airheads that we know. Um, the R90S for its styling, uh, its being the first quote unquote super bike and in part sort of changing the image and helping BMW go along uh, in into the modern era, uh, sort of saving the company. Uh, the R80GS, probably you would agree with this, it pretty much set the trend for the adventure bike. Yeah, it in virtually invented adventure biking and changed the, the face of motorcycling. Did you ever have one? I never have, no. In fact, I laughed at it when I first saw it. <laughs> Why? The color? I, I said, if I'm going to buy a dirt bike, it's not going to have cylinders sticking out the side. And uh, since then, I realized that, particularly after a couple of guys I knew bought them and rode to Alaska. And yeah. And then riding the things on the street, I couldn't believe how well they handled. Yeah, especially with the larger uh, wheel up front, too. So I've uh, changed my view on the GSI. I reject everything new, uh, just how I am. You know, uh, new new blue jeans, those aren't going to be comfortable. I hate them. And, uh, a new motorcycle design, well, that'll never work. And uh, You probably should have heard some of the things I said when I first saw the first K100s. <laughs> well, you, but it sounds like you want uh, proven field results before you're going to buy in. Just takes me a while to warm up to them. <laughs> uh, and then the last one you said uh, was the RS? Mm-hmm. Um, any particular model that, that you like out of those? Well, the 77s were such a, a shock. Uh, I like them very much, especially with the 40-millimeter exhaust pipes. Yeah, well, let me ask you. So, you know, you're doing what you were doing back then. You're probably hearing some rumblings about this, you know, new bike that's going to come out and... You know the the fairing design. What was you know the general reaction? You said you were sort of shocked when when it came out. What do you recall? Uh, uh, was your experience with uh, everybody you knew when that bike first made it to the showroom? Well, I should say it was shocked in a good way. Yeah, I hadn't heard any rumblings at all. Hadn't seen spy pictures. Uh, we were at a BMW dealer meeting in. New Jersey at Butler and Smith when it was introduced, and somehow I wound up on the stage as soon as they uncovered that motorcycle. I couldn't wait to look at it up close and touch it. Um, 
and its approval was pretty much unanimous, both in styling and in function. Um, the only guys who avoided it didn't want to spend the money. They were pricey back then. I mean, that's one thing you had mentioned earlier, how the prices kept creeping up, and that was probably double the price of, uh, you know, the the big Japanese bike of the day as well. It might have been. It's, I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll accept all four of those uh, for the carving on the mountain. Um, tell me about your best roadside repair that you made or your worst roadside breakdown. Well, there's a lot of them, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but one that came to mind, I was uh, annually, two friends and I would go to the southeast and ride the mountain roads. And uh, one of the guys, uh, R80 come R100, uh, stuck an exhaust valve into the piston on the way home oh, Lord. in the dark uh, on an interstate highway. Uh, fortunately for the first, my buddy Rob realized that John was missing. And he stopped, and I realized John, uh, Rob was missing, so I turned around and went back and, what's going on? He says, John's gone. So I continue riding down the shoulder, going the wrong way on an interstate highway at night until I got to John. And uh, a few minutes' diagnosis revealed what I was fearful of, that it had a stuck exhaust valve, and it bent the valve and put a hole in the piston. And, uh, I guess fortunately it was the right side, so I didn't have to stand in traffic to do this, but I, I took the valve cover off of it, put the, pulled the rockers, pulled the push rods, put the rockers back on and started it up and ran it on one cylinder. We um, rode to a motel, the first one we could get to. John spent the night on the Internet trying to find some kind of help. Um, in the morning, he'd reached Anton Larjadere, who said, I know, bud, he can work in our shop if he needs to, which I really stunned me. I said, well, we're closer to Bob's. I am an ex-employee. I think I'm okay there still. And I called their service manager, who also said, yeah, come on in. You can work on the shop, in the shop. Wow. So um, we headed for Bob's. And uh, as we rode along, I thought, if I take this thing apart, I'm not sure it'll go back together. Yeah, <laughs> right. So... Uh, I proposed to John that we see how far it would go, and it went from south of um, Baltimore somewhere all the way to Vermont on one cylinder. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, and it's a, a statement to how tough airheads can be. It, uh, never thought to check the motor oil on it, and uh, it didn't smoke because there was no combustion on that cylinder, but <laughs> with a hole in the top of the piston, lots of oil was getting out of there. And when I took it apart the following day, I discovered, of course, the oil is off the stick and black. Uh, fortunately, uh, no harm done aside from having to replace the piston and cylinder and cylinder head. And lots of money later, it was running again. What do you think, Bud, of the custom cafe scene? Uh. I'm not real happy with where it is at this moment. I like the old cafe racers uh, we'd see back in the 80s. Um, even though they might have been uncomfortable, they seem more practical to me and closer to a, ro a road racer. The, uh, the modern stuff with the uh, exhaust wrap and the chopped-off rear frame section and the no fenders and knobby tires, the, let's just say they leave me cold. I'll agree with that. Do you see, because of that, though, I'm curious, are you seeing a little uptick in business? Um, are, you know, maybe folks are ordering more parts, um, younger people are getting into it. Have you noticed any of that? Well, fortunately, it hasn't come to a head, but I'm not sure I'd allow one in a shop. <laughs> um, and I have offered advice, but very little in the way of, parts, except to make a few brake hoses for guys who need something rather custom to, to match what they've done to the bike. Yeah, yeah, with the uh, half-inch of suspension travel. Yeah, 
or, or whatever, you know, they've, they've done something, and generally we can figure out some way to connect the master cylinder to the calipers. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see 10 years from now, you know, there'll probably be a whole business of undoing everything that was done to those bikes. An old friend of mine had a BSA shop in Indiana, Indiana, and he called me chuckling one day saying, you remember we put an extended front ends in all the British bikes? And I said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he says, I saved all those stock fork tubes. I said, really? He says, yep. And now I'm putting them back on those same bikes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 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 OEM parts, too, so that's good. Yeah, almost NOS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what uh, airheads do you currently own and or ride these days? Well, I did have my dad's 100S, and that, unfortunately, was mostly lost in the fire at my house. Was that a 77 or 78? 77. Oh, man. How, did the paint hold up on that thing? The Well... It's funny, um, it was one of those red metallic ones. Yeah, yeah. Yep, red. Uh, and the year I left here, 1984, Dad asked me to paint it. I was doing a lot of painting in those days. Uh, smoke red, so I did. And the smoke red held up quite well all those years, from 84 to 2017. Um, in the fire, most of the paint I put on came off leaving what looked like pretty good paint underneath. Hmm. Uh, like all those bikes, so it faded badly from yeah. new, uh, which is one of the reasons I think he asked me to paint it. But uh, my uncle had to give up his 77 R100 RS-based bike, which uh, actually had also belonged to Robert Van Vliet. Um, so that is my current airhead ride. It doesn't have the RS fairing anymore. It has an S-type fairing. Oh, okay. It has a set of my pistons in it and various other fun things. Excellent. Uh, okay, what design change would you make um, if you could go back and talk to the BMW engineers from 1970 to 1995 and say, why the hell did you do this? I'm coming in, and this I'm going to make sure this didn't happen. I would have a large, larger rear flange on the crankshaft to mount the flywheel. Hmm. Why is that? Uh, by the time they put the 11-millimeter bolts in in 1976, that left very little material between the bolts to lock the flywheel to the crank. And, uh, there's been a fair number of failures. Now, some of that's due to mechanical screw-ups, as in the guy didn't tighten the bolts tight enough. Yeah. But others and others have been called or caused by honestly abuse by the owners. But it, most of the time, the stuff should have survived. So uh, I would make that bigger uh, and make the hole for the cylinder larger with more room for the studs, so they didn't strip all the time. That is a problem. Uh, yeah. I, I I see it all the time. Thankfully, it's never happened to me, but. You know, it's one of those repairs I just, I hope I never have to make. And like a lot of guys, when I'm torquing the heads and I get to 25, it's always with a little bit of trepidation, that, that last click. Yeah, especially if it doesn't click. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, that engine went from, I think they may have had 900 cc's in mind when they first laid it out. But, of course, then it went all the way up to 100 or 1,000 cc. And it, it wound up with a very close gap between the bore for the cylinder and where the stud goes through. And uh, if they had just made it a little bigger, yeah. And it's funny, I I don't hold Motoguzzi's in high esteem, but when they went to a thousand cc's uh, from eight fifty, uh, they got a whole new bolt center. So oh, okay. Wouldn't pull. So that uh, they addressed that issue. Yeah, and apparently be beforehand. Hmm, interesting. Okay, last one, Bud, on this. Uh, everybody's favorite question, what oil does Bud Proven use? Bud Proven uses Bellray uh, 10W40 in colder weather and 20W50 in warmer weather. 
those three days in August. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, the one oil, the one oil change for the three weeks of warm riding season. That's pretty good. Uh, look, bud, uh, it's been great visiting with you. As I mentioned, really appreciate uh, all your contributions on Adventure Rider. Uh, it's been fun visiting with you, picking your brain, all the great experiences you've had with Airheads over the years. Uh, we'll remind folks um, they can find you on the Internet at the Nick Wackett Garage. Uh, it's kind of funky to spell. I'm not even going to go through that now, but I think if you just sort of type it in, uh, with your best attempt, whether, even if it's phonetically, it'll come up, uh, you're on adventure rider as BMW wrench and you offer a full line of services, uh, parts orders, uh, or ordering parts rather, you know, you keep plenty of stuff in stock, uh, and you're always available, uh, uh, to help uh, that way. So what am I missing as far as what else you do at the shop? You mentioned uh, custom pistons. I don't think we talked about that much. Uh, well, there's a long story behind me making, or actually having made for me pistons, but uh, uh, starting with Vanolia, um, I made 1050cc kit pistons, and since then it's expanded to 1,000cc stuff, uh, R75 race pistons, um, lots of stuff, and I suspect in the future uh, I'm going to need to provide pistons with different ring grooves just for stock replacement, assuming the airhead phenomenon continues, because those ring grooves are getting unusual in the motoring industry. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So information on that, again, available at the Nick Wackett Garage, or Nick Wackett Garage. Uh, also, you mentioned uh, you do brake lines and all that kind of stuff. So all your airhead needs, uh, just a few com uh, computer clicks away uh, on the Internet. Bud, uh, really appreciate the time and continued success. Thank you, and thanks for uh, the interview. Good to have Bud on with us this week, and we really appreciate him joining us. A link to his website, as usual, in the About section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer-engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.